forward. Deepak Chopra, MD. Founder of the Chopra Center for Well-Being and author of more than 80 books translated in over 43 languages, including 22 New York Times bestsellers. No one deserves our gratitude more than the late Marshall Rosenberg, who lived his life just as the title of one of his books states, Speak Peace in a World of Conflict. He was keenly aware of the maxim, or warning, that's contained in the subtitle of that book, What You Say Next Will Change Your World. Personal reality always contains a story, and the story we live, beginning from infancy, is based on language. This became the foundation of Marshall's approach to conflict resolution, getting people to exchange words in a way that excludes judgments, blame, and violence. The contorted faces of protesters on the streets that make such disturbing images on the evening news are more than images. Each face, each shout, each gesture has a history. Everyone clings to their history with a vengeance, because it anchors their identity. So when Marshall advocated peaceful talk, he was advocating a new identity at the same time. He fully realized this fact. As he states about nonviolent communication and the role of the mediator in this new third edition, we're trying to live a different value system while we are asking for things to change. In his vision of a new value system, conflicts are resolved without the usual frustrating compromises. Instead, the contending parties approach each other with respect. They ask about each other's needs, and in an atmosphere free of passions and prejudices, they reach a connection. Gazing on a world rife with war and violence, whereas versus them thinking is the norm, and where countries can break all bonds of civilized existence to commit unbearable atrocities, a new value system seems far away. At one European conference for mediators, a skeptic criticized Marshall's approach as psychotherapy. In popular language, isn't he asking us to simply forget the past and just be friends, a remote prospect not just in the war-torn areas but in any divorce case? Value systems are packed in the luggage of every worldview. Not only are they inescapable, but people are proud of them, there's a long tradition around the world of prizing and fearing warriors at the same time. Jungians tell us that the archetype of Mars, the volatile god of war, is embedded in everyone's unconscious, making conflict and aggression inevitable, a kind of inherent vice. But there's an alternative view of human nature, eloquently expressed in this book that must be considered, because it's our only real hope. In this view, we are not our stories. These stories are self-created fictions that remain intact through habit, group coercion, old conditioning, and lack of self-awareness. Even the best stories collaborate in violence. If you want to use force to protect your family, guard yourself from attack, fight against wrongdoing, prevent crime, and engage in a so-called good war, you have been co-opted by the siren song of violence. If you decide to opt out, there's a sizable chance that society will turn on you and exact retribution. In short, finding a way out isn't easy. In India there's an ancient model for nonviolent living known as ahimsa, which is central to the nonviolent life. Ahimsa is usually defined as nonviolence, although its meaning extends from Mahatma Gandhi's peaceful protest to Albert Schweitzer's reverence for life. Do no harm would be the first axiom of ahimsa. What so impressed me about Marshall Rosenberg, who passed away at 80, just six weeks before I write this, is that he grasped both levels of ahimsa, action and consciousness. The actions are well described in the following pages as principles of nonviolent communication, so I won't repeat them here. To be in ahimsa consciousness is much more powerful, and Marshall possessed that trait. In any conflict, he didn't choose sides or even care primarily what their stories were. 
recognizing that all stories lead to conflict, either overtly or covertly, he focused on connections as a psychological bridge. This is in keeping with another axiom of Ahimsa, it's not what you do that counts, it's the quality of your attention. As far as the legal system is concerned, a divorce is over once the two parties settle on how to split their assets. But this is far from the result that's reached emotionally between the two divorced parties. Too much has been said, to use Marshall's wording, that changed their world. Aggression is built into the ego system, which totally focuses on I, me, and mine whenever conflict arises. Society pays lip service to saints and their vow to serve God instead of themselves, but there's a huge gap between the values we espouse and the way we actually live. Ahimsa closes this gap only by expanding a person's awareness. The only way to resolve all violence is to give up your story. No one can be enlightened who still has a personal stake in the world, that could be the third axiom of Ahimsa. But this seems like a teaching as radical as Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount when he promises that the meek shall inherit the earth. In both cases, the point isn't to change your actions but to change your consciousness. To do that, you must walk a path from A to B, where A is a life based on the incessant demands of the ego and B is selfless awareness. To be frank, nobody really desires selfless awareness, from the viewpoint of looking out for number one, it sounds at once scary and impossible. What's the payoff if you depose the ego, which is all about payoffs? Once the ego is gone, do you sit around passively like a spiritual beanbag? The answer lies in those moments when the personal self falls away naturally and spontaneously. These occur in moments of meditation or simply deep contentment. Selfless awareness is the state wherein when nature or art or music creates a sense of wonder. The only difference between those moments, to which we can add all experiences of creativity, love, and play, and ahimsa is that they flicker in and out while ahimsa is a settled state. It reveals that stories and the egos that fuel them are illusions, self-created models for survival and selfishness. The payoff for ahimsa isn't that you upgrade the illusion, which is what the ego is always striving to do with more money, possessions, and power. The payoff is that you get to be who you really are. Higher consciousness is too lofty as the term for ahimsa. Normal consciousness is more accurate in a world where the norm is so abnormal that it amounts to psychopathology. It's not normal to live in a world where thousands of nuclear warheads are aimed at the enemy and terrorism is an acceptable religious act, they are merely the norm. For me, the legacy of Marshall's lifelong work doesn't lie in how he revolutionized the role of the mediator, valuable as that was. It lies in the new value system he lived by, which in truth is quite ancient. Ahimsa has to be revived in every generation, because human nature is torn between peace and violence. Marshall Rosenberg gave proof that entering this state of expanded awareness was real and, when it came to settling disputes, very practical. He leaves footprints that the rest of us can follow. If we have true self-interest at heart, we will follow. It's the only alternative in a world desperately seeking wisdom and the end of strife. Deepak Chopra Acknowledgements I'm grateful that I was able to study and work with Professor Carl Rogers at a time when he was researching the components of a helping relationship. The results of this research played a key role in the evolution of the process of communication that I will be describing in this book. I will be forever grateful that Professor Michael Hakim helped me to see the scientific limitations and the social and political dangers of practicing psychology in the way that I had been trained, with a pathology-based understanding of human beings. Seeing the limitations of this model stimulated me to search for ways of practicing a different psychology, 
one based on a growing clarity about how we human beings were meant to live. I'm grateful, too, for George Miller's and George Albee's efforts to alert psychologists to the need to find better ways for giving psychology away. They helped me see that the enormity of suffering on our planet requires more effective ways of distributing much-needed skills than can be offered by a clinical approach. I would like to thank Lucy Leu for editing this book and creating the final manuscript, Rita Herzog and Kathy Smith for their editing assistance, and, for their additional help, Daryl Milligan, Sonia Nordenson, Melanie Sears, Bridget Belgrave, Marion Moore, Catrell McCord, Virginia Hoida, and Peter Weissmiller. Finally, I would like to express gratitude to my friend Annie Muller. Her encouragement to be clear about the spiritual foundation of my work has strengthened that work and enriched my life. Words are windows. Or they're walls. I feel so sentenced by your words. I feel so judged and sent away. Before I go I've got to know. Is that what you mean to say? Before I rise to my defense. Before I speak in hurt or fear. Before I build that wall of words. Tell me, did I really hear? Words are windows, or they're walls. They sentence us, or set us free. When I speak and when I hear. Let the love light shine through me. There are things I need to say. Things that mean so much to me. If my words don't make me clear. Will you help me to be free? If I seem to put you down. If you felt I didn't care. Try to listen through my words. To the feelings that we share. Ruth Biebermayer. 1. Giving from the heart. The heart of nonviolent communication. What I want in my life is compassion. A flow between myself and others based. On a mutual giving from the heart. Marshall B. Rosenberg, Ph.D. Introduction. Believing that it is our nature to enjoy giving and receiving in a compassionate manner, I have been preoccupied most of my life with two questions, what happens to disconnect us from our compassionate nature, leading us to behave violently and exploitatively? And conversely, what allows some people to stay connected to their compassionate nature under even the most trying circumstances? My preoccupation with these questions began in childhood, around the summer of 1943, when our family moved to Detroit, Michigan. The second week after we arrived, a race war erupted over an incident at a public park. More than 40 people were killed in the next few days. Our neighborhood was situated in the center of the violence, and we spent three days locked in the house. When the race riot ended and school began, I discovered that a name could be as dangerous as any skin color. When the teacher called my name during attendance, two boys glared at me and hissed, Are you a Kike? I had never heard the word before and didn't know some people used it in a derogatory way to refer to Jews. After school, the same two boys were waiting for me, they threw me to the ground and kicked and beat me. Since that summer in 1943, I have been examining the two questions I mentioned. What empowers us, for example, to stay connected to our compassionate nature even under the worst circumstances? I am thinking of people like Eddie Hillisum, who remained compassionate even while subjected to the grotesque conditions of a German concentration camp. As she wrote in her journal at the time. I am not easily frightened. Not because I am brave but because I know that I am dealing with human beings, and that I must try as hard as I can to understand everything that anyone ever does. And that was the real import of this morning, not that a disgruntled young Gestapo officer yelled at me, but that I felt no indignation, rather a real compassion, 
and would have liked to ask, did you have a very unhappy childhood, has your girlfriend let you down? Yes, he looked harassed and driven, sullen and weak. I should have liked to start treating him there and then, for I know that pitiful young men like that are dangerous as soon as they are let loose on mankind. Eddie Hillisum and Eddie, A Diary 1941-1943 While studying the factors that affect our ability to stay compassionate, I was struck by the crucial role of language and our use of words. I have since identified a specific approach to communicating, both speaking and listening, that leads us to give from the heart, connecting us with ourselves and with each other in a way that allows our natural compassion to flourish. I call this approach nonviolent communication, using the term nonviolence as Gandhi used it, to refer to our natural state of compassion when violence has subsided from the heart. While we may not consider the way we talk to be violent, words often lead to hurt and pain, whether for others or ourselves. In some communities, the process I am describing is known as compassionate communication, the abbreviation NBC is used throughout this book to refer to nonviolent or compassionate communication. NBC, a way of communicating that leads us to give from the heart. A way to focus attention. NBC is founded on language and communication skills that strengthen our ability to remain human, even under trying conditions. It contains nothing new, all that has been integrated into NBC has been known for centuries. The intent is to remind us about what we already know about how we humans were meant to relate to one another, and to assist us in living in a way that concretely manifests this knowledge. NBC guides us in reframing how we express ourselves and hear others. Instead of habitual, automatic reactions, our words become conscious responses based firmly on awareness of what we are perceiving, feeling, and wanting. We are led to express ourselves with honesty and clarity, while simultaneously paying others a respectful and empathic attention. In any exchange, we come to hear our own deeper needs and those of others. NBC trains us to observe carefully, and to be able to specify behaviors and conditions that are affecting us. We learn to identify and clearly articulate what we are concretely wanting in any given situation. The form is simple, yet powerfully transformative. As NBC replaces our old patterns of defending, withdrawing, or attacking in the face of judgment and criticism, we come to perceive ourselves and others, as well as our intentions and relationships, in a new light. Resistance, defensiveness, and violent reactions are minimized. When we focus on clarifying what is being observed, felt, and needed rather than on diagnosing and judging, we discover the depth of our own compassion. Through its emphasis on deep listening, to ourselves as well as to others, NBC fosters respect, attentiveness, and empathy and engenders a mutual desire to give from the heart. We perceive relationships in a new light when we use NBC to hear our own deeper needs and those of others. Although I refer to it as a process of communication or a language of compassion, NBC is more than a process or a language. On a deeper level, it is an ongoing reminder to keep our attention focused on a place where we are more likely to get what we are seeking. There is a story of a man on all fours under a street lamp, searching for something. A policeman passing by asked what he was doing. Looking for my car keys, replied the man, who appeared slightly drunk. Did you drop them here? inquired the officer. No, answered the man, I dropped them in the alley. Seeing the policeman's baffled expression, the man hastened to explain, but the light is much better here. I find that my cultural conditioning leads me to focus attention on places where I am unlikely to get what I want. 
I developed NBC as a way to train my attention, to shine the light of consciousness, on places that have the potential to yield what I am seeking. What I want in my life is compassion, a flow between myself and others based on a mutual giving from the heart. Let's shine the light of consciousness on places where we can hope to find what we are seeking. This quality of compassion, which I refer to as giving from the heart, is expressed in the following lyrics by my friend Ruth Biebermayer. I never feel more given to than when you take from me. When you understand the joy I feel giving to you. And you know my giving isn't done to put you in my debt. But because I want to live the love I feel for you. To receive with grace. Maybe the greatest giving. There's no way I can separate the two. When you give to me. I give you my receiving. When you take from me, I feel so given to. Given to, 1978, by Ruth Biebermayer from the album Given To. When we give from the heart, we do so out of the joy that springs forth whenever we willingly enrich another person's life. This kind of giving benefits both the giver and the receiver. The receiver enjoys the gift without worrying about the consequences that accompany gifts given out of fear, guilt, shame, or desire for gain. The giver benefits from the enhanced self-esteem that results when we see our efforts contributing to someone's well-being. The use of NVC does not require that the persons with whom we are communicating be literate in NVC or even motivated to relate to us compassionately. If we stay with the principles of NVC, stay motivated solely to give and receive compassionately, and do everything we can to let others know this is our only motive, they will join us in the process, and eventually we will be able to respond compassionately to one another. I'm not saying that this always happens quickly. I do maintain, however, that compassion inevitably blossoms when we stay true to the principles and process of NBC. The NBC process. To arrive at a mutual desire to give from the heart, we focus the light of consciousness on four areas, referred to as the four components of the NBC model. First, we observe what is actually happening in a situation, what are we observing others saying or doing that is either enriching or not enriching our life? The trick is to be able to articulate this observation without introducing any judgment or evaluation, to simply say what people are doing that we either like or don't like. Next, we state how we feel when we observe this action, are we hurt, scared, joyful, amused, irritated? And thirdly, we say what needs of ours are connected to the feelings we have identified. An awareness of these three components is present when we use NBC to clearly and honestly express how we are. Four components of NBC. 1. Observations. 2. Feelings. 3. Needs. 4. Requests. For example, a mother might express these three pieces to her teenage son by saying, Felix, when I see two balls of soiled socks under the coffee table and another three next to the TV, I feel irritated because I am needing more order in the rooms that we share in common. She would follow immediately with the fourth component, a very specific request, would you be willing to put your socks in your room or in the washing machine? This fourth component addresses what we are wanting from the other person that would enrich our lives or make life more wonderful for us. Thus, part of NBC is to express these four pieces of information very clearly whether verbally or by other means. The other part of this communication consists of receiving the same four pieces of information from others. We connect with them by first sensing what they are observing, feeling, and needing, then we discover what would enrich their lives by receiving the fourth piece, their request. As we keep our attention focused on the areas mentioned, 
and help others do likewise, we establish a flow of communication, back and forth, until compassion manifests naturally, what I am observing, feeling, and needing, what I am requesting to enrich my life, what you are observing, feeling, and needing, what you are requesting to enrich your life. NBC Process The concrete actions we observe that affect our well-being. How we feel in relation to what we observe. The needs, values, desires, etc. that create our feelings. The concrete actions we request in order to enrich our lives. When we use this process, we may begin either by expressing ourselves or by empathically receiving these four pieces of information from others. Although we will learn to listen for and verbally express each of these components in chapters 3 to 6, it is important to keep in mind that NBC is not a set formula, but something that adapts to various situations as well as personal and cultural styles. While I conveniently refer to NBC as a process or language, it is possible to experience all four pieces of the process without uttering a single word. The essence of NBC is in our consciousness of the four components, not in the actual words that are exchanged. Two parts of NBC. Expressing honestly through the four components. Receiving empathically through the four components. Applying NBC in our lives and the world. When we use NBC in our interactions, with ourselves, with another person, or in a group, we become grounded in our natural state of compassion. It is therefore an approach that can be effectively applied at all levels of communication and in diverse situations. Intimate relationships. Families. Schools. Organizations and institutions. Therapy and counseling relationships. Diplomatic and business negotiations. Disputes and conflicts of any nature. Some people use NBC to create greater depth and caring in their intimate relationships. When I learned how I can receive, hear, as well as give, express, through using NBC, I went beyond feeling attacked and doormatish to really listening to words and extracting their underlying feelings. I discovered a very hurting man to whom I had been married for 28 years. He had asked me for a divorce the weekend before the NBC workshop. To make a long story short, we are here today together, and I appreciate the contribution, NBC has, made to our happy ending. I learned to listen for feelings, to express my needs, to accept answers that I didn't always want to hear. He is not here to make me happy, nor am I here to create happiness for him. We have both learned to grow, to accept, and to love, so that we can each be fulfilled. A Workshop Participant in San Diego, California Others use it to build more effective relationships at work. I have been using NBC in my special education classroom for about one year. It can work even with children who have language delays, learning difficulties, and behavior problems. One student in our classroom spits, swears, screams, and stabs other students with pencils when they get near his desk. I cue him with, please say that another way. Use your giraffe talk. Giraffe puppets are used in some workshops as a teaching aid to demonstrate NBC, he immediately stands up straight, looks at the person toward whom his anger is directed, and says calmly, would you please move away from my desk? I feel angry when you stand so close to me. The other students might respond with something like, sorry. I forgot it bothers you. I began to think about my frustration with this child and to try to discover what I needed from him, besides harmony and order. 
I realized how much time I had put into lesson planning and how my needs for creativity and contribution were being short-circuited in order to manage behavior. Also, I felt I was not meeting the educational needs of the other students. When he was acting out in class, I began to say, I need you to share my attention. It might take a hundred cues a day, but he got the message and would usually get involved in the lesson. A teacher in Chicago, Illinois. A doctor writes, I use NBC more and more in my medical practice. Some patients ask me whether I am a psychologist, saying that usually their doctors are not interested in the way they live their lives or deal with their diseases. NBC helps me understand what patients' needs are and what they need to hear at a given moment. I find this particularly helpful in relating to patients with hemophilia and AIDS because there is so much anger and pain that the patient-slash-healthcare provider relationship is often seriously impaired. Recently a woman with AIDS, whom I have been treating for the past five years, told me that what has helped her the most have been my attempts to find ways for her to enjoy her daily life. My use of NVC helps me a lot in this respect. Often in the past, when I knew that a patient had a fatal disease, I myself would get caught in the prognosis, and it was hard for me to sincerely encourage them to live their lives. With NVC, I have developed a new consciousness as well as a new language. I am amazed to see how much it fits in with my medical practice. I feel more energy and joy in my work as I become increasingly engaged in the dance of NBC. A physician in Paris, France. Still others use this process in the political arena. A French cabinet member visiting her sister remarked how differently the sister and her husband were communicating and responding to each other. Encouraged by their descriptions of NBC, she mentioned that she was scheduled the following week to negotiate some sensitive issues between France and Algeria regarding adoption procedures. Though time was limited, we dispatched a French-speaking trainer to Paris to work with the cabinet minister. The minister later attributed much of the success of her negotiations in Algeria to her newly acquired communication techniques. In Jerusalem, during a workshop attended by Israelis of varying political persuasions, Participants used NBC to express themselves regarding the highly contested issue of the West Bank. Many of the Israeli settlers who have established themselves on the West Bank believe that they are fulfilling a religious mandate by doing so, and they are locked in conflict not only with Palestinians but also with other Israelis who recognize the Palestinian hope for national sovereignty in the region. During a session, one of my trainers and I modeled empathic hearing through NBC and then invited participants to take turns role playing each other's position. After 20 minutes, a settler announced that she would be willing to consider relinquishing her land claims and moving out of the West Bank into internationally recognized Israeli territory if her political opponents could listen to her in the way she had just been listened to. Worldwide, NBC now serves as a valuable resource for communities facing violent conflicts and severe ethnic, religious, or political tensions. The spread of NBC training and its use in mediation by people in conflict in Israel, the Palestinian Authority, Nigeria, Rwanda, Sierra Leone, and elsewhere have been a source of particular gratification for me. My associates and I were once in Belgrade for three highly charged days training citizens working for peace. When we first arrived, expressions of despair were visibly etched on the trainees' faces, for their country was then enmeshed in a brutal war in Bosnia and Croatia. As the training progressed, we heard the ring of laughter in their voices as they shared their profound gratitude and joy for having found the empowerment they were seeking. Over the next two weeks, during trainings in Croatia, Israel, and Palestine, 
we again saw desperate citizens in war-torn countries regaining their spirits and confidence from the NBC training they received. I feel blessed to be able to travel throughout the world teaching people a process of communication that gives them power and joy. Now, with this book, I am pleased and excited to be able to share the richness of nonviolent communication with you. Summary NBC helps us connect with each other and ourselves in a way that allows our natural compassion to flourish. It guides us to reframe the way we express ourselves and listen to others by focusing our consciousness on four areas, what we are observing, feeling, and needing, and what we are requesting to enrich our lives. NBC fosters deep listening, respect, and empathy and engenders a mutual desire to give from the heart. Some people use NBC to respond compassionately to themselves, some to create greater depth in their personal relationships, and still others to build effective relationships at work or in the political arena. Worldwide, NBC is used to mediate disputes and conflicts at all levels. NBC in Action Interspersed throughout the book are dialogues entitled NBC in Action. These dialogues intend to impart the flavor of an actual exchange in which a speaker is applying the principles of nonviolent communication. However, NBC is not simply a language or a set of techniques for using words. The consciousness and intent that it embraces may be expressed through silence, a quality of presence, as well as through facial expressions and body language. The NBC and action dialogues you will be reading are necessarily distilled and abridged versions of real-life exchanges, where moments of silent empathy, stories, humor, gestures, and more would all contribute to a more natural flow of connection between the two parties than might be apparent when dialogues are condensed in print. Murderer, Assassin, Child Killer I was presenting nonviolent communication to about 170 Palestinian Muslim men in a mosque at Dishay refugee camp in Bethlehem. Attitudes toward Americans at that time were not favorable. As I was speaking, I suddenly noticed a wave of muffled commotion fluttering through the audience. They're whispering that you are American. My translator alerted me, just as a gentleman in the audience leapt to his feet. Facing me squarely, he hollered at the top of his lungs, murderer. Immediately a dozen other voices joined him in chorus, assassin. Child killer. Murderer. Fortunately, I was able to focus my attention on what the man was feeling and needing. In this case, I had some cues. On the way into the refugee camp, I had seen several empty tear gas canisters that had been shot into the camp the night before. Clearly marked on each canister were the words made in USA I knew that the refugees harbored a lot of anger toward the United States for supplying tear gas and other weapons to Israel. I addressed the man who had called me a murderer. MBR, are you angry because you would like my government to use its resources differently? I didn't know whether my guess was correct, what was critical was my sincere effort to connect with this feeling and need. Man, damn right I'm angry. You think we need tear gas? We need sewers, not your tear gas. We need housing. We need to have our own country. MBR, so you're furious and would appreciate some support in improving your living conditions and gaining political independence? Man, do you know what it's like to live here for 27 years the way I have with my family, children and all? Have you got the faintest idea what that's been like for us? MBR, Sounds like you're feeling very desperate and you're wondering whether I or anybody else can really understand what it's like to be living under these conditions. Am I hearing you right? Man, you want to understand? Tell me, do you have children? Do they go to school? Do they have playgrounds? My son is sick. 
He plays in open sewage. His classroom has no books. Have you seen a school that has no books? MBR, I hear how painful it is for you to raise your children here. You'd like me to know that what you want is what all parents want for their children, a good education, opportunity to play and grow in a healthy environment. Man, that's right, the basics. Human rights, isn't that what you Americans call it? Why don't more of you come here and see what kind of human rights you're bringing here? MBR, you'd like more Americans to be aware of the enormity of the suffering here and to look more deeply at the consequences of our political actions? Our dialogue continued, with him expressing his pain for nearly 20 more minutes, and me listening for the feeling and need behind each statement. I didn't agree or disagree. I received his words, not as attacks, but as gifts from a fellow human willing to share his soul and deep vulnerabilities with me. Once the gentleman felt understood, he was able to hear me explain my purpose for being at the camp. An hour later, the same man who had called me a murderer was inviting me to his home for a Ramadan dinner. 2. Communication that blocks compassion. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. For as you judge others, so you will yourselves be judged. Holy Bible, Matthew 7 1. In studying the question of what alienates us from our natural I state of compassion, I have identified specific forms of language and communication that I believe contribute to our behaving violently toward each other and ourselves. I use the term life-alienating communication to refer to these forms of communication. Certain ways of communicating alienate us from our natural state of compassion. Moralistic judgments. One kind of life-alienating communication is the use of moralistic judgments that imply wrongness or badness on the part of people who don't act in harmony with our values. Such judgments are reflected in language, the problem with you is that you're too selfish. She's lazy. They're prejudiced. It's inappropriate. Blame, insults, put-downs, labels, criticism, comparisons, and diagnoses are all forms of judgment. The Sufi poet Rumi once wrote, Out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and right-doing, there is a field. I'll meet you there. Life-alienating communication, however, traps us in a world of ideas about rightness and wrongness, a world of judgments. It is a language rich with words that classify and dichotomize people and their actions. When we speak this language, we judge others and their behavior while preoccupying ourselves with who's good, bad, normal, abnormal, responsible, irresponsible, smart, ignorant, etc. In the world of judgments, our concern centers on who is what. Long before I reached adulthood, I learned to communicate in an impersonal way that did not require me to reveal what was going on inside myself. When I encountered people or behaviors I either didn't like or didn't understand, I would react in terms of their wrongness. If my teachers assigned a task I didn't want to do, they were mean or unreasonable. If someone pulled out in front of me in traffic, my reaction would be, you idiot. When we speak this language, we think and communicate in terms of what's wrong with others for behaving in certain ways or, occasionally, what's wrong with ourselves for not understanding or responding as we would like. Our attention is focused on classifying, analyzing, and determining levels of wrongness rather than on what we and others need and are not getting. Thus if my partner wants more affection than I'm giving her, she is needy and dependent. But if I want more affection than she is giving me, then she is aloof and insensitive. If my colleague is more concerned about details than I am, he is picky and compulsive. On the other hand, if I am more concerned about details than he is, 
he is sloppy and disorganized. Analyses of others are actually expressions of our own needs and values. It is my belief that all such analyses of other human beings are tragic expressions of our own values and needs. They are tragic because when we express our values and needs in this form, we increase defensiveness and resistance among the very people whose behaviors are of concern to us. Or, if people do agree to act in harmony with our values, they will likely do so out of fear, guilt, or shame because they concur with our analysis of their wrongness. We all pay dearly when people respond to our values and needs not out of a desire to give from the heart, but out of fear, guilt, or shame. Sooner or later, we will experience the consequences of diminished goodwill on the part of those who comply with our values out of a sense of either external or internal coercion. They, too, pay emotionally, for they are likely to feel resentment and decreased self-esteem when they respond to us out of fear, guilt, or shame. Furthermore, Each time others associate us in their minds with any of those feelings, the likelihood of their responding compassionately to our needs and values in the future decreases. It is important here not to confuse value judgments and moralistic judgments. All of us make value judgments as to the qualities we value in life, for example, we might value honesty, freedom, or peace. Value judgments reflect our beliefs of how life can best be served. We make moralistic judgments of people and behaviors that fail to support our value judgments, for example, violence is bad. People who kill others are evil. Had we been raised speaking a language that facilitated the expression of compassion, we would have learned to articulate our needs and values directly, rather than to insinuate wrongness when they have not been met. For example, instead of violence is bad, we might say instead, I am fearful of the use of violence to resolve conflicts, I value the resolution of human conflicts through other means. The relationship between language and violence is the subject of psychology professor O.J. Harvey's research at the University of Colorado. He took random samples of pieces of literature from many countries around the world and tabulated the frequency of words that classify and judge people. His study shows a high correlation between frequent use of such words and frequency of incidents. It does not surprise me to hear that there is considerably less violence in cultures where people think in terms of human needs than in cultures where people label one another as good or bad and believe that the bad ones deserve to be punished. In 75% of the television programs shown during hours when American children are most likely to be watching, the hero either kills people or beats them up. This violence typically constitutes the climax of the show. Viewers, having been taught that bad guys deserve to be punished, take pleasure in watching this violence. Classifying and judging people promotes violence. At the root of much, if not all, violence, whether verbal, psychological, or physical, whether among family members, tribes, or nations, is a kind of thinking that attributes the cause of conflict to wrongness in one's adversaries, and a corresponding inability to think of oneself or others in terms of vulnerability, that is, what one might be feeling, fearing, yearning for, missing, etc. We saw this dangerous way of thinking during the Cold War. Our leaders viewed the USSR as an evil empire bent on destroying the American way of life. Soviet leaders referred to the people of the United States as imperialist oppressors who were trying to subjugate them. Neither side acknowledged the fear lurking behind such labels. Making Comparisons Another form of judgment is the use of comparisons. In his book How to Make Yourself Miserable, Dan Greenberg demonstrates through humor the insidious power that comparative thinking can exert over us. He suggests that if readers have a sincere desire to make life miserable for themselves, 
they might learn to compare themselves to other people. For those unfamiliar with this practice, he provides a few exercises. The first one displays full-length pictures of a man and a woman who embody ideal physical beauty by contemporary media standards. Readers are instructed to take their own body measurements, compare them to those superimposed on the pictures of the attractive specimens, and dwell on the differences. Comparisons are a form of judgment. This exercise produces what it promises, we start to feel miserable as we engage in these comparisons. By the time we're as depressed as we think possible, we turn the page to discover that the first exercise was a mere warm-up. Since physical beauty is relatively superficial, Greenberg next provides an opportunity to compare ourselves on something that matters, achievement. He turns to the phone book to give readers a few random individuals to compare themselves with. The first name he claims to have pulled out of the phone book is Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. Greenberg lists the languages Mozart spoke and the major pieces he had composed by the time he was a teenager. The exercise then instructs readers to reflect on their own achievements at their current stage of life, to compare them with what Mozart had accomplished by age 12, and to dwell on the differences. Even readers who never emerge from the self-induced misery of this exercise might see how powerfully this type of thinking blocks compassion, both for oneself and for others. Denial of Responsibility Another kind of life-alienating communication is denial of responsibility. Communication is life-alienating when it clouds our awareness that we are each responsible for our own thoughts, feelings, and actions. The use of the common expression have to, as in there are some things you have to do, whether you like it or not, illustrates how personal responsibility for our actions can be obscured in speech. The phrase makes one feel, as in you make me feel guilty, is another example of how language facilitates denial of personal responsibility for our own feelings and thoughts. Our language obscures awareness of personal responsibility. In her book Eichmann in Jerusalem, which documents the war crimes trial of Nazi officer Adolf Eichmann, Hannah Arendt quotes Eichmann saying that he and his fellow officers had their own name for the responsibility-denying language they used. They called it Amtsprache, loosely translated into English as office talk or bureaucraties. For example, if asked why they took a certain action, the response would be, I had to. If asked why they had to, the answer would be, superiors' orders. Company policy. It was the law. We deny responsibility for our actions when we attribute their cause to factors outside ourselves. Vague, impersonal forces, I cleaned my room because I had to. Our condition, diagnosis, or personal or psychological history, I drink because I am an alcoholic. The actions of others, I hit my child because he ran into the street. The dictates of authority, I lied to the client because the boss told me to. Group pressure, I started smoking because all my friends did. Institutional policies, rules, and regulations, I have to suspend you for this infraction because it's the school policy. Gender roles, social roles, or age roles, I hate going to work, but I do it because I am a husband and a father. Uncontrollable impulses, I was overcome by my urge to eat the candy bar. Once, during a discussion among parents and teachers on the dangers of a language that implies absence of choice, a woman objected angrily, but there are some things you have to do whether you like it or not. And I see nothing wrong with telling my children that there are things they have to do, too. Asked for an example of something she had to do, she retorted, that's easy. When I leave here tonight, I have to go home and cook. I hate cooking. I hate it with a passion, 
but I have been doing it every day for 20 years, even when I've been as sick as a dog, because it's one of those things you just have to do. I told her I was sad to hear her spending so much of her life doing something she hated, because she felt compelled to, and I just hoped that she might find happier possibilities by learning the language of NVC. I am pleased to report that she was a fast learner. At the end of the workshop, she actually went home and announced to her family that she no longer wanted to cook. The opportunity for some feedback from her family came three weeks later when her two sons arrived at a workshop. I was curious to know how they had reacted to their mother's announcement. The elder son sighed, Marshall, I just said to myself, thank God. Seeing my puzzled look, he explained, I thought to myself, maybe finally she won't be complaining at every meal. We can replace language that implies lack of choice with language that acknowledges choice. Another time, when I was consulting for a school district, a teacher remarked, I hate giving grades. I don't think they are helpful and they create a lot of anxiety on the part of students. But I have to give grades, it's the district policy. We had just been practicing how to introduce language in the classroom that heightens consciousness of responsibility for one's actions. I suggested that the teacher translate the statement I have to give grades because it's district policy to I choose to give grades because I want, she answered without hesitation, I choose to give grades because I want to keep my job, while hastening to add, but I don't like saying it that way. It makes me feel so responsible for what I'm doing. We are dangerous when we are not conscious of our responsibility for how we behave, think, and feel. That's why I want you to do it that way, I replied. I share the sentiments of French novelist and journalist George Bernanos when he says, I have thought for a long time now that if, someday, the increasing efficiency for the technique of destruction finally causes our species to disappear from the earth, it will not be cruelty that will be responsible for our extinction and still less, of course, the indignation that cruelty awakens and the reprisals and vengeance that it brings upon itself, but the docility, the lack of responsibility of the modern man, his base subservient acceptance of every common decree. The horrors that we have seen, the still greater horrors we shall presently see, are not signs that rebels, insubordinate, untamable men are increasing in number throughout the world, but rather that there is a constant increase in the number of obedient, docile men. George Bernanos Other Forms of Life Alienating Communication Communicating our desires as demands is yet another form of language that blocks compassion. A demand explicitly or implicitly threatens listeners with blame or punishment if they fail to comply. It is a common form of communication in our culture, especially among those who hold positions of authority. My children gave me some invaluable lessons about demands. Somehow I had gotten it into my head that, as a parent, my job was to make demands. I learned, however, that I could make all the demands in the world but still couldn't make my children do anything. This is a humbling lesson and power for those of us who believe that, because we're a parent, teacher, or manager, our job is to change other people and make them behave. Here were these youngsters letting me know that I couldn't make them do anything. All I could do was make them wish they had, through punishment. Then eventually they taught me that any time I was foolish enough to make them wish they had complied by punishing them, they had ways of making me wish that I hadn't. We can never make people do anything. We will examine this subject again when we learn to differentiate requests from demands, an important part of NVC. The concept that certain actions merit reward while others merit punishment is also associated with life-alienating communication. This thinking is expressed by the word deserve as in he deserves to be punished for what he did. 
It assumes badness on the part of people who behave in certain ways, and it calls for punishment to make them repent and change their behavior. I believe it is in everyone's interest that people change, not in order to avoid punishment, but because they see the change as benefiting themselves. Thinking based on who deserves what blocks compassionate communication. Most of us grew up speaking a language that encourages us to label, compare, demand, and pronounce judgments rather than to be aware of what we are feeling and needing. I believe life alienating communication is rooted in views of human nature that have exerted their influence for several centuries. These views stress humans' innate evil and deficiency, and a need for education to control our inherently undesirable nature. Such education often leaves us questioning whether there is something wrong with whatever feelings and needs we may be experiencing. We learn early to cut ourselves off from what's going on within ourselves. Life alienating communication has deep philosophical and political roots. Life alienating communication both stems from and supports hierarchical or domination societies, where large populations are controlled by a small number of individuals to those individuals' own benefit. It would be in the interest of kings, czars, nobles, and so forth that the masses be educated in a way that renders them slave-like in mentality. The language of wrongness, should, and have too is perfectly suited for this purpose, the more people are trained to think in terms of moralistic judgments that imply wrongness and badness, the more they are being trained to look outside themselves, to outside authorities, for the definition of what constitutes right, wrong, good, and bad. When we are in contact with our feelings and needs, we humans no longer make good slaves and underlings. Summary It is our nature to enjoy giving and receiving compassionately. We have, however, learned many forms of life alienating communication that lead us to speak and behave in ways that injure others and ourselves. One form of life alienating communication is the use of moralistic judgments that imply wrongness or badness on the part of those who don't act in harmony with our values. Another is the use of comparisons, which can block compassion both for others and for ourselves. Life alienating communication also obscures our awareness that we are each responsible for our own thoughts, feelings, and actions. Communicating our desires in the form of demands is yet another characteristic of language that blocks compassion. 3. Observing without evaluating. Observe. There are few things as important, as religious, as that. Frederick Beekner, Minister. I can handle your telling me what I did or didn't do. And I can handle your interpretations. But please don't mix the two. If you want to confuse any issue, I can tell you how to do it. Mix together what I do with how you react to it. Tell me that you're disappointed with the unfinished chores you see. But calling me irresponsible is no way to motivate me. And tell me that you're feeling hurt when I say no to your advances. But calling me a frigid man won't increase your future chances. Yes, I can handle your telling me what I did or didn't do. And I can handle your interpretations. But please don't mix the two. Marshall B. Rosenberg, Ph.D. The first component of NBC entails the separation of observation from evaluation. We need to clearly observe what we are seeing, hearing, or touching that is affecting our sense of well-being, without mixing in any evaluation. Observations are an important element in NBC, where we wish to clearly and honestly express how we are to another person. 
when we combine observation with evaluation, we decrease the likelihood that others will hear our intended message. Instead, they are apt to hear criticism and thus resist whatever we are saying. NBC does not mandate that we remain completely objective and refrain from evaluating. It only requires that we maintain a separation between our observations and our evaluations. NBC is a process language that discourages static generalizations. Instead, evaluations are to be based on observations specific to time and context. Semanticist Wendell Johnson pointed out that we create many problems for ourselves by using static language to express or capture a reality that is ever-changing. Our language is an imperfect instrument created by ancient and ignorant men. It is an animistic language that invites us to talk about stability and constants, about similarities and normal and kinds, about magical transformations, quick cures, simple problems, and final solutions. Yet the world we try to symbolize with this language is a world of process, change, differences, dimensions, functions, relationships, growths, interactions, developing, learning, coping, complexity. And the mismatch of our ever-changing world and our relatively static language forms is part of our problem. When we combine observation with evaluation, people are apt to hear criticism. A colleague of mine, Ruth Biebermayer, contrasts static and process language in a song that illustrates the difference between evaluation and observation. I've never seen a lazy man. I've seen a man who never ran. While I watched him, and I've seen a man who sometimes slept between lunch and dinner, and who'd stay at home upon a rainy day. But he was not a lazy man. Before you call me crazy. Think, was he a lazy man or did he just do things we label lazy? I've never seen a stupid kid. I've seen a kid who sometimes did things I didn't understand or things in ways I hadn't planned. I've seen a kid who hadn't seen the same places where I had been. But he was not a stupid kid. Before you call him stupid. Think, was he a stupid kid or did he? Just know different things than you did? I've looked as hard as I can look. But never ever seen a cook. I saw a person who combined. Ingredients on which we dined. A person who turned on the heat. And watched the stove that cooked the meat. I saw those things but not a cook. Tell me, when you're looking. Is it a cook you see or is it someone? Doing things that we call cooking? What some of us call lazy. Some call tired or easygoing. What some of us call stupid. Some just call it different knowing. So I've come to the conclusion. It will save us all confusion. If we don't mix up what we can see. With what is our opinion. Because you may, I want to say also. I know that's only my opinion. Ruth Biebermayer While the effects of negative labels such as lazy and stupid may be more obvious, even a positive or an apparently neutral label such as cook limits our perception of the totality of another person's being. The highest form of human intelligence. The Indian philosopher J. Krishnamurti once remarked that observing without evaluating is the highest form of human intelligence. When I first read this statement, the thought, what nonsense shot through my mind before I realized that I had just made an evaluation. For most of us, it is difficult to make observations, especially of people and their behavior, that are free of judgment, criticism, or other forms of analysis. 
I became acutely aware of this difficulty while working with an elementary school where the staff and principal had often reported communication difficulties. The district superintendent had requested that I help them resolve the conflict. First I was to confer with the staff, and then with the staff and principal together. I opened the meeting by asking the staff, what is the principal doing that conflicts with your needs? He has a big mouth. Came the swift response. My question called for an observation, but while Big Mouth gave me information on how this teacher evaluated the principal, it failed to describe what the principal said or did that led to the interpretation that he had a big mouth. When I pointed this out, a second teacher offered, I know what he means, the principal talks too much. Instead of a clear observation of the principal's behavior, this was also an evaluation, of how much the principal talked. A third teacher then declared, he thinks only he is anything worth saying. I explained that inferring what another person is thinking is not the same as observing his behavior. Finally a fourth teacher ventured, he wants to be the center of attention all the time. After I remarked that this too was an inference, of what another person is wanting, two teachers blurted in unison, well, your question is very hard to answer. We subsequently worked together to create a list identifying specific behaviors, on the part of the principal, that bothered them, and made sure that the list was free of evaluation. For example, the principal told stories about his childhood and war experiences during faculty meetings, with the result that meetings sometimes ran 20 minutes overtime. When I asked whether they had ever communicated their annoyance to the principal, the staff replied that they had tried, but only through evaluative comments. They had never made reference to specific behaviors, such as his storytelling, and they agreed to bring these up when we were all to meet together. Almost as soon as the meeting began, I saw what the staff had been telling me. No matter what was being discussed, the principal would interject, this reminds me of the time, and then launch into a story about his childhood or war experience. I waited for the staff to voice their discomfort around the principal's behavior. However, instead of nonviolent communication, they applied nonverbal condemnation. Some rolled their eyes, others yawned pointedly, one stared at his watch. I endured this painful scenario until finally I asked, isn't anyone going to say something? An awkward silence ensued. The teacher who had spoken first at our meeting screwed up his courage, looked directly at the principal, and said, Ed, you have a big mouth. As this story illustrates, it's not always easy to shed our old habits and master the ability to separate observation from evaluation. Eventually, the teacher succeeded in clarifying for the principal the specific actions that led to their concern. The principal listened earnestly and then pressed, why didn't one of you tell me before? He admitted he was aware of his storytelling habit, and then began a story pertaining to this habit. I interrupted him, observing, good-naturedly, that he was doing it again. We ended our meeting by developing ways for the staff to let their principal know, in a gentle way, when his stories weren't appreciated. Distinguishing Observations from Evaluations The following table distinguishes observations that are separate from evaluation from those that have evaluation mixed in. Communication Example of Observation with Evaluation Mixed An Example of Observation Separate from Evaluation 1. Use of verb to be without indication that the evaluator takes responsibility for the evaluation you are too generous. When I see you give all your lunch money to others, I think you are being too generous. 2. Use of verbs with evaluative connotations Doug procrastinates. Doug only studies for exams the night before. 3. 
implication that one's inferences about another person's thoughts, feelings, intentions, or desires are the only ones possible she won't get her work in. I don't think she'll get her work in. Or. She said, I won't get my work in. 4. Confusion of prediction with certainty if you don't eat balanced meals, your health will be impaired. If you don't eat balanced meals, I fear your health may be impaired. 5. Failure to be specific about reference immigrants don't take care of their property. I have not seen the immigrant family living at 1,679 Ross shovel the snow on their sidewalk. 6. Use of words denoting ability without indicating that an evaluation is being made Hank Smith is a poor soccer player. Hank Smith has not scored a goal in 20 games. 7. Use of adverbs and adjectives in ways that do not indicate an evaluation has been made Jim is ugly. Jim's looks don't appeal to me. Note, the words always, never, ever, whenever, etc. express observations when used in the following ways. Whenever I have observed Jack on the phone, he has spoken for at least 30 minutes. I cannot recall your ever writing to me. Sometimes such words are used as exaggerations, in which case observations and evaluations are being mixed. You are always busy. She is never there when she's needed. When these words are used as exaggerations, they often provoke defensiveness rather than compassion. Words like frequently and seldom can also contribute to confusing observation with evaluation. Evaluations Observations You seldom do what I want. The last three times I initiated an activity, you said you didn't want to do it. He frequently comes over. He comes over at least three times a week. Summary The first component of NBC entails the separation of observation from evaluation. When we combine observation with evaluation, others are apt to hear criticism and resist what we are saying. NBC is a process language that discourages static generalizations. Instead, observations are to be made specific to time and context, for example, Hank Smith has not scored a goal in 20 games, rather than Hank Smith is a poor soccer player. NBC in action. The most arrogant speaker we've ever had. This dialogue occurred during a workshop I was conducting. About half an hour into my presentation, I paused to invite reactions from the participants. One of them raised a hand and declared, you're the most arrogant speaker we've ever had. I have several options open to me when people address me this way. One option is to take the message personally, I know I'm doing this when I have a strong urge to either grovel, defend myself, or make excuses. Another option, for which I am well rehearsed, is to attack the other person for what I perceive as their attack upon me. On this occasion, I chose a third option by focusing on what might be going on behind the man's statement. MBR, guessing at the observations being made, are you reacting to my having taken 30 straight minutes to present my views before giving you a chance to talk? Phil, no, you make it sound so simple. MBR, trying to obtain further clarification, are you reacting to my not having said anything about how the process can be difficult for some people to apply? Phil, no, not some people, you. MBR, so you're reacting to my not having said that the process can be difficult for me at times? Phil, that's right. MBR, are you feeling annoyed because you would have liked some sign from me that indicated that I have some problems with the process myself? Phil, after a moment's pause, that's right. MBR, 
feeling more relaxed now that I am in touch with the person's feeling and need, I direct my attention to what he might be requesting of me, would you like me to admit right now that this process can be a struggle for me to apply? Phil, yes. MBR, having gotten clear on his observation, feeling, need, and request, I check inside myself to see if I am willing to do as he requests, yes, this process is often difficult for me. As we continue with the workshop, you'll probably hear me describe several incidents where I've struggled, or completely lost touch, with this process, this consciousness, that I am presenting here to you. But what keeps me in the struggle are the close connections to other people that happen when I do stay with the process. Exercise 1. Observation or Evaluation? To determine your proficiency at discerning between observations and evaluations, complete the following exercise. Circle the number in front of each statement that is an observation only, with no evaluation mixed in. John was angry with me yesterday for no reason. Yesterday evening Nancy bit her fingernails while watching television. Sam didn't ask for my opinion during the meeting. My father is a good man. Janice works too much. Henry is aggressive. Pam was first in line every day this week. My son often doesn't brush his teeth. Luke told me I didn't look good in yellow. My aunt complains when I talk with her. Here are my responses for exercise 1. If you circled this number, we're not in agreement. I consider for no reason to be an evaluation. Furthermore, I consider it an evaluation to infer that John was angry. He might have been feeling hurt, scared, sad, or something else. Examples of observations without evaluation might be, John told me he was angry, or John pounded his fist on the table. If you circled this number, we're in agreement that an observation was expressed without being mixed together with an evaluation. If you circled this number, we're in agreement that an observation was expressed without being mixed together with an evaluation. If you circled this number, we're not in agreement. I consider good man to be an evaluation. An observation without evaluation might be, for the last 25 years, my father has given one-tenth of his salary to charity. If you circled this number, we're not in agreement. I consider too much to be an evaluation. An observation without evaluation might be, Janice spent more than 60 hours at the office this week. If you circled this number, we're not in agreement. I consider aggressive to be an evaluation. An observation without evaluation might be, Henry hit his sister when she switched the television channel. If you circled this number, we're in agreement that an observation was expressed without being mixed together with an evaluation. If you circled this number, we're not in agreement. I consider often to be an evaluation. An observation without evaluation might be, twice this week my son didn't brush his teeth before going to bed. If you circled this number, we're in agreement that an observation was expressed without being mixed together with an evaluation. If you circled this number, we're not in agreement. I consider complaints to be an evaluation. An observation without evaluation might be, my aunt called me three times this week, and each time talked about people who treated her in ways she didn't like. The mask. Always a mask. Held in the slim hand whitely. Always she had a mask before her. Face. Truly the wrist. Holding it lightly. Fitted the task. Sometimes however. Was there a shiver? Fingertip quiver. Ever so slightly. 
holding the mask? For years and years and years I wondered, but dared not ask. And then I blundered, looked behind the mask to find nothing. She had no face. She had become merely a hand holding a mask with grace. Author unknown. 4. Identifying and expressing feelings. The first component of NBC is to observe without evaluating, the second component is to express how we are feeling. Psychoanalyst Rollo may suggest that the mature person becomes able to differentiate feelings into as many nuances, strong and passionate experiences, or delicate and sensitive ones as in the different passages of music in a symphony. For many of us, however, our feelings are, as May would describe it, limited like notes in a bugle call. The heavy cost of unexpressed feelings. Our repertoire of words for calling people names is often larger than our vocabulary of words to clearly describe our emotional states. I went through 21 years of American schools and can't recall anyone in all that time ever asking me how I felt. Feelings were simply not considered important. What was valued was the right way to think as defined by those who held positions of rank and authority. We are trained to be other-directed rather than to be in contact with ourselves. We learn to be up in our head, wondering, what is it that others think is right for me to say and do? An interaction I had with a teacher when I was about nine years old demonstrates how alienation from our feelings can begin. I once hid myself in a classroom after school because some boys were waiting outside to beat me up. A teacher spotted me and asked me to leave the school. When I explained I was afraid to go, she declared, big boys don't get frightened. A few years later I received further reinforcement through my participation in athletics. It was typical for coaches to value athletes willing to give their all and continue playing no matter how much physical pain they were in. I learned the lesson so well I once continued playing baseball for a month with an untreated broken wrist. At an NBC workshop, a college student spoke about being kept awake by a roommate who played the stereo late at night and loudly. When asked to express what he felt when this happened, the student replied, I feel that it isn't right to play music so loud at night. I pointed out that when he followed the word feel with the word that, he was expressing an opinion but not revealing his feelings. Asked to try again to express his feelings, he responded, I feel, when people do something like that, it's a personality disturbance. I explained that this was still an opinion rather than a feeling. He paused thoughtfully, and then announced with vehemence, I have no feelings about it whatsoever. This student obviously had strong feelings. Unfortunately, he didn't know how to become aware of his feelings, let alone express them. This difficulty in identifying and expressing feelings is common, and in my experience, especially so among lawyers, engineers, police officers, corporate managers, and career military personnel, people whose professional codes discourage them from manifesting emotions. For families, the toll is severe when members are unable to communicate emotions. Country singer Reba McIntyre wrote a song after her father's death, entitled It The Greatest Man I Never Knew. In so doing, she undoubtedly expressed the sentiments of many people who were never able to establish the emotional connection they would have liked with their fathers. I regularly hear statements like, I wouldn't want you to get the wrong idea, I'm married to a wonderful man, but I never know what he is feeling. One such dissatisfied woman brought her spouse to a workshop, during which she told him, I feel like I'm married to a wall. The husband then did an excellent imitation of a wall, he sat mute and immobile. 
Exasperated, she turned to me and exclaimed, See, this is what happens all the time. He sits and says nothing. It's just like living with a wall. It sounds to me like you are feeling lonely and wanting more emotional contact with your husband, I responded. When she agreed, I tried to show how statements such as I feel like I'm living with a wall are unlikely to bring her feelings and desires to her husband's attention. In fact, they are more likely to be heard as criticism than as invitations to connect with our feelings. Furthermore, such statements often lead to self-fulfilling prophecies. A husband, for example, hears himself criticized for behaving like a wall, he is hurt and discouraged and doesn't respond, thereby confirming his wife's image of him as a wall. The benefits of strengthening our feelings vocabulary are evident not only in intimate relationships but also in the professional world. I was once hired to consult with members of a technological department of a large Swiss corporation, they were troubled by the discovery that workers in other departments were avoiding them. When asked, employees from other departments responded, we hate going there to consult with those people. It's like talking to a bunch of machines. The problem abated when I spent time with the members of the technological department, encouraging them to express more of their humanness in their communications with co-workers. In another instance, I was working with hospital administrators who were anxious about a forthcoming meeting with the hospital's physicians. The administrators were eager to have me demonstrate how they might use NBC when approaching the physicians for support for a project that had only recently been turned down by a vote of 17 to 1. Assuming the voice of an administrator in a role-playing session, I opened with, I'm feeling frightened to be bringing up this issue. I chose to start this way because I sensed how frightened the administrators were as they prepared to confront the physicians on this topic again. Before I could continue, one of the administrators stopped me to protest, you're being unrealistic. We could never tell the physicians that we were frightened. When I asked why an admission of fear seemed so impossible, he replied without hesitation, if we admitted we're frightened, then they would just pick us to pieces. His answer didn't surprise me. I have often heard people say they cannot imagine ever expressing feelings at their workplace. I was pleased to learn, however, that one of the administrators did decide to risk expressing his vulnerability at the dreaded meeting. Departing from his customary manner of appearing strictly logical, rational, and unemotional, he chose to state his feelings together with his reasons for wanting the physicians to change their position. He noticed how differently the physicians responded to him. In the end he was amazed and relieved when, Instead of picking him to pieces, the physicians reversed their previous position and voted 17 to 1 to support the project instead. This dramatic turnaround helped the administrators realize and appreciate the potential impact of expressing vulnerability, even in the workplace. Expressing our vulnerability can help resolve conflicts. Finally, let me share a personal incident that taught me the effects of hiding our feelings. I was teaching a course in NBC to a group of inner-city students. When I walked into the room the first day, the students, who had been enjoying a lively conversation with each other, became quiet. Good morning. I greeted. Silence. I felt very uncomfortable, but was afraid to express it. Instead, I proceeded in my most professional manner, for this class, we will be studying a process of communication that I hope you will find helpful in your relationships at home and with your friends. I continued to present information about NBC but no one seemed to be listening. One girl, rummaging through her bag, fished out a file and began vigorously filing her nails. Students near the windows glued their faces to the panes as if fascinated by what was going on in the street below. I felt increasingly more uncomfortable, 
yet continued to say nothing about it. Finally, a student who had certainly more courage than I was demonstrating, piped up, you just hate being with black people, don't you? I was stunned, yet immediately realized how I had contributed to this student's perception by trying to hide my discomfort. I am feeling nervous, I admit it, but not because you are black. My feelings have to do with my not knowing anyone here and wanting to be accepted when I came in the room. My expression of vulnerability had a pronounced effect on the students. They started to ask questions about me, to tell me things about themselves, and to express curiosity about NBC. Feelings versus non-feelings. A common confusion, generated by the English language, is our use of the word feel without actually expressing a feeling. For example, in the sentence, I feel I didn't get a fair deal, the words I feel could be more accurately replaced with I think. In general, feelings are not being clearly expressed when the word feel is followed by. Words such as that, like, as if, I feel that you should know better. I feel like a failure. I feel as if I'm living with a wall. The pronouns I, you, he, she, they, it, I feel I am constantly on call. I feel it is useless. Names or nouns referring to people, I feel Amy has been pretty responsible. I feel my boss is being manipulative. Distinguish feelings from thoughts. Conversely, in the English language, it is not necessary to use the word feel at all when we are actually expressing a feeling we can say, I'm feeling irritated, or simply, I'm irritated. Distinguish between what we feel and what we think we are. In NBC, we distinguish between words that express actual feelings and those that describe what we think we are. Description of what we think we are, I feel inadequate as a guitar player. In this statement, I am assessing my ability as a guitar player, rather than clearly expressing my feelings. Expressions of actual feelings I feel disappointed in myself as a guitar player. I feel impatient with myself as a guitar player. I feel frustrated with myself as a guitar player. The actual feeling behind my assessment of myself as inadequate could therefore be disappointment, impatience, frustration, or some other emotion. Likewise, it is helpful to differentiate between words that describe what we think others are doing around us, and words that describe actual feelings. The following are examples of statements that are easily mistaken as expressions of feelings, in fact they reveal more how we think others are behaving than what we are actually feeling ourselves. Distinguish between what we feel and how we think others react or behave toward us. I feel unimportant to the people with whom I work. The word unimportant describes how I think others are evaluating me, rather than an actual feeling, which in this situation might be I feel sad or I feel discouraged. I feel misunderstood. Here the word misunderstood indicates my assessment of the other person's level of understanding rather than an actual feeling. In this situation, I may be feeling anxious or annoyed or some other emotion. 3. I feel ignored. Again, this is more of an interpretation of the actions of others than a clear statement of how we are feeling. No doubt there have been times we thought we were being ignored and our feeling was relief, because we wanted to be left to ourselves. No doubt there were other times, However, when we felt hurt when we thought we were being ignored, because we had wanted to be involved. Words like ignored express how we interpret others, rather than how we feel. Here is a sampling of such words. Abandoned. Abused. Attacked. Betrayed. Boxed in. Bullied. Cheated. Coerced. 
Co-opted. Cornered. Diminished. Distrusted. Interrupted. Intimidated. Let down. Manipulated. Misunderstood. Neglected. Overworked. Patronized. Pressured. Provoked. Put down. Rejected. Taken for granted. Threatened. Unappreciated. Unheard. Unseen. Unsupported. Unwanted. Used. Building a vocabulary for feelings. In expressing our feelings, it helps to use words that refer to specific emotions, rather than words that are vague or general. For example, if we say, I feel good about that, the word good could mean happy, excited, relieved, or a number of other emotions. Words such as good and bad prevent the listener from connecting easily with what we might actually be feeling. The following lists have been compiled to help you increase your power to articulate feelings and clearly describe a whole range of emotional states. How we are likely to feel when our needs are being met. Absorbed. Adventurous. Affectionate. Alert. Alive. Amazed. Amused. Animated. Appreciative. Ardent. Aroused. Astonished. Blissful. Breathless. Buoyant. Calm. Carefree. Cheerful. Comfortable. Complacent. Composed. Concerned. Confident. Contented. Cool. Curious. Dazzled. Delighted. Eager. Ebullient. Ecstatic. Effervescent. Elated. Enchanted. Encouraged. Energetic. Engrossed. Enlivened. Enthusiastic. Excited. Exhilarated. Expansive. Expectant. Exultant. Fascinated. Free. Friendly. Fulfilled. Glad. Gleeful. Glorious. Glowing. Good-humored. Grateful. Gratified. Happy. Helpful. Hopeful. Inquisitive. Inspired. Intense. Interested. Intrigued. Invigorated. Involved. Joyous, joyful. Jubilant. Keyed up. Loving. Mellow. Merry. Mirthful. Moved. Optimistic. Overjoyed. Overwhelmed. Peaceful. Perky. Pleasant. Pleased. Proud. Quiet. Radiant. Rapturous. Refreshed. Relaxed. Relieved. Satisfied. Secure. Sensitive. Serene. Spellbound. Splendid. Stimulated. Surprised. Tender. Thankful. Thrilled. Touched. Tranquil. Trusting. Upbeat. Warm. Wide awake. Wonderful. Zestful. How we are likely to feel when our needs are not being met. Afraid. Aggravated.
agitated, alarmed, aloof, angry, anguished, annoyed, anxious, apathetic, apprehensive, aroused, ashamed, beat, bewildered, bitter, blah, blue board, brokenhearted, chagrined, cold, concerned, confused, cool, cross, dejected, depressed, despairing, despondent, detached, disaffected, disappointed, discouraged, disenchanted, disgruntled, disgusted, disheartened, dismayed, displeased, disquieted, distressed, disturbed, downcast, downhearted, dull, edgy, embarrassed, embittered, exasperated, exhausted, fatigued, fearful, fidgety, forlorn, frightened, frustrated, furious, gloomy, guilty, harried, heavy, helpless, hesitant, horrible, horrified, hostile, hot, humdrum, hurt, impatient, indifferent, intense, irate, irked, irritated, jealous, jittery, keyed up, lazy, leery, lethargic, listless, lonely, mad, mean, miserable, mopey, morose, mournful, nervous, nettled, numb, overwhelmed, panicky, passive, perplexed, pessimistic, puzzled, rancorous, reluctant, repelled, resentful, restless, sad, scared, sensitive, shaky, shocked, skeptical, sleepy, sorrowful, sorry, spiritless, startled, surprised, suspicious, tepid, terrified, tired, troubled, uncomfortable, unconcerned, uneasy, unglued, unhappy, unnerved, unsteady, upset, uptight, vexed, weary, wistful, withdrawn, woeful, worried, wretched, summary, the second component necessary for expressing ourselves as feelings. By developing a vocabulary of feelings that allows us to clearly and specifically name or identify our emotions, we can connect more easily with one another. Allowing ourselves to be vulnerable by expressing our feelings can help resolve conflicts. NBC distinguishes the expression of actual feelings from words and statements that describe thoughts, assessments, and interpretations. Exercise 2. Expressing Feelings If you would like to see whether we're in agreement about the verbal expression of feelings, 
circle the number in front of each of the following statements in which feelings are verbally expressed. I feel you don't love me. I'm sad that you're leaving. I feel scared when you say that. When you don't greet me, I feel neglected. I'm happy that you can come. You're disgusting. I feel like hitting you. I feel misunderstood. I feel good about what you did for me. I'm worthless. Here are my responses for exercise 2. If you circled this number, we're not in agreement. I don't consider you don't love me to be a feeling. To me, it expresses what the speaker thinks the other person is feeling, rather than how the speaker is feeling. Whenever the words I feel are followed by the words I, you, he, she, they, it, that, like, or as if, what follows is generally not what I would consider to be a feeling. An expression of feeling in this case might be, I'm sad, or I'm feeling anguished. If you circled this number, we're in agreement that a feeling was verbally expressed. If you circled this number, we're in agreement that a feeling was verbally expressed. If you circled this number, we're not in agreement. I don't consider neglected to be a feeling. To me, it expresses what the speaker thinks the other person is doing to him or her. An expression of feeling might be, when you don't greet me at the door, I feel lonely. If you circled this number, we're in agreement that a feeling was verbally expressed. If you circled this number, we're not in agreement. I don't consider disgusting to be a feeling. To me, it expresses how the speaker thinks about the other person, rather than how the speaker is feeling. An expression of feeling might be, I feel disgusted. If you circled this number, we're not in agreement. I don't consider like hitting you to be a feeling. To me, it expresses what the speaker imagines doing, rather than how the speaker is feeling. An expression of feeling might be, I am furious at you. If you circled this number, we're not in agreement. I don't consider misunderstood to be a feeling. To me, it expresses what the speaker thinks the other person is doing. An expression of feeling in this case might be, I feel frustrated, or I feel discouraged. If you circled this number, we're in agreement that a feeling was verbally expressed. However, the word good is vague when used to convey a feeling. We can usually express our feelings more clearly by using other words, for example, relieved, gratified, or encouraged. If you circled this number, we're not in agreement. I don't consider worthless to be a feeling. To me, it expresses how the speaker thinks about himself or herself, rather than how the speaker is feeling. An expression of feeling in this case might be, I feel skeptical about my own talents, or I feel wretched.